Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I think one of the questions I get more often than not from all sorts of people is why is everyone so stressed out these days? Kind of like what happened that we've gone on stress overload, I think. Um, But in my experience, uh, people are increasingly stressed, irritable, rushed, and a whole lot more. And the hypothesis for today is that tiny events ones that don't even trigger the fight or flight response are actually creating a very much of a snowball effect. We're going to call these tiny events micro stressors. I shouldn't say we, my guests are going to call them micro stressors and I'm adopting their language. I want to talk about what these are. I want to talk about whether this is just a new label for the same old phenomena or not. And most importantly, we want to talk about what to do about them. So my guests today are Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, and they are co-authors of the book, The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It, published by Harvard Business Review Press. Rob Cross is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College. He's the co-founder and director of Connected Commons, a consortium that has over 150 leading organizations. And Karen is an author and former editor at Harvard Business Review Magazine, the co-author of three books with Clayton Christensen, New York Times bestseller, How Will You Measure Your Life?, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Competing Against Luck, The Story of Innovation and Customer Choice, and the Thinkers 50 Breakthrough Idea Finalist, The Prosperity Paradox. Um, Karen and Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, you Wanda. Glad to be here. Glad to have you both. I've been guests separately, so kind of cool for me to have (laughs) you both back again in parallel. All right, Rob, I want to start with you first. Um, And I want to hear why, because your work is all on collaboration and networking and the best networks and collaboration overloads, some books and some research that I cite a lot. So it's fabulous work. What got you started on this topic of stress? Great question. I, um, I'm so lucky to be associated with the Connected Commons, the group that I helped form, and it's grown to about 150 leading organizations that sponsor research into looking at collaborations and, and networks analytically and the effect on different aspects of organizations. Um, but this work emerged, it was about five or six years ago, I remember presenting some really great work we'd done around understanding high performers. And that led to a book a couple of years back. And I got the push from the member companies at the time saying, we'd love to for you, Rob, to expand your definition of success today to be both about performance, but also about well-being or thriving or, you know, people that are just doing well in their lives professionally and personally. And I remember thinking at that time, that wasn't, you know, as as pressing an issue as I wanted to study around innovation or other things like that, uh, but was super blessed with their, you know, pushing me on it and kind of holding my feet to the fire because it gave us some some runway to really do hundreds and hundreds of interviews on this and understand this idea of micro stress ultimately in more depth. And it's become such a prevalent issue 
today. Obviously, pre-pandemic, it was an emerging issue because the stress is coming at us as a product of how hyper-connected we are in different ways. Uh, but going through the pandemic, we saw that that stress ratcheted up, as well as uh, many of the coping mechanisms that we use to kind of make that stress feel smaller disappeared in many of our lives. And so uh, it's been a real blessing, you know, to be pushed in certain ways by the, the consortium members, to be honest. It's interesting, this notion of what our high performers do, that combination of performance. Yes, I mean, that's always in the equation. But I think anybody who looks at really top performers who sustain it over time know that there's more to it than just delivering the results. There's something about how they lead their teams and develop their teams and build inspiration. And this notion of thriving that you can't, I often say, you want to get to the position, but you want to stick and thrive while you're there as opposed mm. to burn out in a couple of years. So you you and your um, consortium members were seeing that. All right. I want to follow up. Stress comes because we're in a hyper-connected world. Explain. What we were seeing in there, and, and I'll tell you a story of how this work got started. It was a first interview. It was a you know, lovely person, British accent uh, from the UK life science executive. And I won't try to mimic that you know, for your listeners and butcher that, but it was really fantastic interview. And what we were focused on was what are the legitimate ways that relationships affect our well-being when we look at it in terms of how they impact our physical health, uh, how we grow in and out of our profession, uh, how we experience purpose in our lives, and then how we get a resilience, right? Um, and so that was the real emphasis early on. Those were legitimate ways we could see the role of relationships and having impact on well-being. And our focus was on trying to move it past some of the current work that's really saying you need two or three best friends, right? You need a couple of quality connections, which is very true. But that's that's tough to make actionable for people, you know, as, as advice on, on what you need to go do. So very first interview. And I, I you know, put this question out there. So I'd love you to tell me about a time in your life where you're becoming more physically healthy and not what you did. But what was the role of the connections around you that got you into this, helped you persist, made you you know, see your world differently, whatever it may be. And she proceeded to tell me this amazing story about being somebody that, you know, dodged every physical activity she could <laughs> up until her, you know, mid to late thirties. And then life and profession took over and her doctor gave her a stern warning and said, you can't keep doing this. And her resolution to that was to start walking around a park, you know, outside of her flat in London. And she, you know, started bumping into the same people. And so they did longer walks and then a charity run. And, you know, you flash forward 10 years and she was telling me a story that she had become somebody that um, would plan vacations with her husband where they would run a marathon together first. Right. And then go on the vacation. And so it was an amazing story of transformation and the connections were a critical piece of it. She said, it wasn't just that they held me accountable. It was that they made me somebody different and new. I was spending time with a diversity of people I'd never bumped into as a life science executive. They saw me at my worst. I saw them at their worst. So this interview is going a hundred miles a minute. You know, I'm thinking if we get hundreds more of these, we have another New York times bestseller for Karen here. Everything's going to be great. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, you know, quickly asked midway through, I said, well, what, what got you in trouble to begin with? And this interview that was going hundred miles a minute went down to nothing, you know, and she just looked at me for probably 30, 45 seconds, not a single word from either one of us. And she finally said, I don't really know, you know, something like just life, I guess. 
And, and we really dug into that and, and the small ways that stress had embedded in her day, day to day, week to week, years to years, that was all coming at her through connections. And some of them were interactions that were conventionally how we would think about stress, maybe sensing misalignment with a colleague and trying to figure out how to deal with that or seeing somebody that needs to be coached and trying to figure out how to deal with that. But some of it was positive. You know, seeing uh, a child that she cared about struggling in certain ways and trying to figure out what to do about that, right? None of this um, was insurmountable for successful people. And so I loved what you were just saying about success, right? Because I think that's one of the problems is as successful people, we're taught that these are all small things. Of course, we overcome these. The problem is that we're getting hit with a volume, velocity, and pace of these things that we have never experienced before because of the way we're all hyperconnected. And to your point, what happens is our brains don't register it. We don't kick into fight or flight mode, but our bodies absorb this through the day and we end up going home at night exhausted, but can't quite put a finger you know, on what just happened. What it is. What it is. Yeah, you can put a finger on a sick child. You can put a finger on a boss that you can't manage day in and day out who's, you know, being obnoxious to you. I mean, those things you can put a finger on. But these small ones, I mean, what I hear from people most of the time is just the volume of request, email request, meeting request. I mean, to your earlier book, Collaboration Overload, it's just the sheer numbers of those and no space to pause and say, what did I just agree to do, let alone what was on my to-do list? Right, right. And it haunts us in, in a temporal way too. Like a lot of times I find that people jump into these things because of certain needs they have, right? They want to appear to be a good colleague or they want to retain status in the situation. So that moment actually feels great when you say yes <laughs> or that you know window of time, but then it comes back four, six, eight weeks later in ambiguity or other problems you're trying to resolve. And again, our brains aren't, that's not what we do well. You know, we, we get the big things, you know, but not uh, things over time or the, the smaller moments. Yeah. Okay. 300 interviews. That's an enormous amount. You want to just tell us a tiny bit about the, res- you know, the nature of the research? Sure. Sure. I'll start it. And then Karen uh, uh, can, can jump in as well. Um, I'll tell you one thing that was intriguing to us. Number one is you do that many interviews and you're down at the level that we would get with people talking about the stresses and struggles in their lives. And it will get into your soul. It'll change your life because you get a very different perspective on how people are struggling. These are conversations that maybe you have with three or four people in your lives, but we were having them with hundreds, you know, and really understanding the, the stresses. And the thing, one of the things that was interesting to us is about 90% of them would follow the order, you know, of the first 10 minutes, everything is rainbows and lollipops. It's all wonderful and life is great. And then you get down to minute 30 and some cracks start to come in and 45 and 60. And these conventionally successful people from the top organizations out there are struggling, right, to, to get through and to manage and and hold things together. Um, and so we learned a lot around the degree to which this stress is happening and affecting everybody in a pretty profound way and, and things to do about it. But then the other group we really learned a lot from was the, the group that didn't go in that direction. You know, there's about 10% that kind of stayed at a high plane throughout and they became super interesting too, uh, to understand kind of what they were doing and how they were investing uh, in ways that, that, uh, that had impact. Noted, we're coming back to that point. What's the top 10% and what are they doing differently? But let me get Karen into this discussion. Karen, micro stressors, okay, what are they? How do we really tell the difference between those and the regular stressors? 
So microstressors or microstress, as we call it, are tiny moments of stress that happen because of what are routine interactions with people in our personal and professional life that happen so briefly and they're so baked into our day that we literally barely remember or notice them. But cumulatively, they take an enormous toll on us. So we have language, as you were talking about earlier, we have language and you can put a finger on, you know, a sick child and a boss who's a jerk. Those are bigger forms of stress and we, we know how to talk about it and we know how to get empathy for it and support other people for it. But microstressors individually sound so small and so insignificant if you even remember them in the first place. Um, so you, they, they seem silly to talk about. You know, I, I, I had a really stressful day because I had an email at nine o'clock that maybe chase down people for two hours. But the reality is you'll have, you know, a dozen of those or more in a day. So every individual one by itself may seem manageable. But um, at, a, at a cumulative level, they're really taking a significant toll on you. Okay. And are they all about interactions? As you look yes, at the collection? I mean, they, yeah. Yes, that's that's the common thread in our different definition of microstress. It is, and again, as you guys were speaking about earlier, because of the way we are so hyper connected now, we just have exponential more interactions with other people. And so, in our definition of microstress, it, it, they are caused by interactions with people that, again, are in your routine life, usually positively or negatively. They're not all jerky people. They're not people who are trying to be obnoxious to you. They're just things that happen because we're so busy and we have so many things going on. And you talked about having more meetings than ever before. One thing that we know happened in the pandemic was that people tried to take a break from meetings by saying, let's just have half hour meetings instead of hour meetings. But for many organizations, that meant we have 16 half hour meetings today rather than eight one hour meetings. And that means each of those meetings comes with follow-ups and to-do and did we comprehend and who is missing and what am I supposed to do? You leave a meeting still processing and maybe you leave the same meeting and we never kind of aligned at the end and now we're going off in different directions. Just the opportunity for microstress from simply that, that's just one example, is exponential and that's changed in, in recent years because of the way we're hyper-connected. Throw a pandemic on top, throw changing our patterns of, of how we communicate and work together and collaborate. Um, now you have a recipe for microstress. Yeah, absolutely. And the pre-meetings in advance of the meetings to make sure that the meeting is aligned. Right, right. Alone <laughs> comes out of the meeting. Like right, exactly. Ripple exactly. down on that one. One of the phenomena that I'm seeing post-COVID started at the very end of COVID, but I'm seeing strongly now is that people, it feels like people are less connected with each other. Mm. So I'm hearing more and more and more from my clients that I don't actually know that person particularly well. I don't know anything about their personal life. I don't have that sense of connection or warmth or rapport with them. Do Is that one of also the micro stressors? I think the, the authentic connectivity is an antidote to micro stress, you know, and I think that what we're seeing is that that has been dropping actually for quite some time. I think it's more prevalent with COVID, um, but there's a lot of studies that are showing that uh, when we become clinically lonely, so number one, the studies are showing that the authenticity and the quality of the relationships that we have traditionally had in our lives has been dissipating, not the volume, right? The volume's way up, <laughs> but the, the authenticity and the intimacy, if you will, that aspect of, of connections that matter to us. And there's really profound effects for that when that happens. If people become clinically lonely, the mortality rate is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. You know, you're 26% more likely to die in a certain time period than people that have those connections. 
Uh, you can go down a list of things that are related to heart disease, blood pressure, dementia, you know, you name it. And as I went through this, you know, just thinking about it in general, how the quality of the connections have declined. I was kind of floored that we don't take it more seriously, you know, that we will chase a blood pressure medicine or cholesterol medication down when the exact same risk factors we just ignore and don't pay attention to in terms of either stress that's created on us or the things that help us ride through it, you know, and what, what we have seen, our equivalent of what we've seen in that is um, the, the happiest people in our work, our 10 percenters, they tended to have at least two and usually three groups they were an authentic part of. Uh, outside of their profession, you know, and those groups provide perspective, they provide friendship, they provide a diversity of thought that's different than just their profession or direct family. And that's really critical. It helps keep us out of the minutia, you know, and so as one example, through COVID, you know, people pulled out of those groups, right? They stopped going to their book clubs, their running groups, whatever it may be. And a lot of people haven't found their way back in. You know, and so as a product of what Karen was saying, our work is more fractured. We have a lot more stress occurring today. And at the same time, we've pulled out of antidotes to it, you know, in different ways. Yeah. New York Times just uh, previewed research that had been published that says in the U.S., the long the lifespan is declining. I don't know if you've seen that headline recently, but that would underlie, I think, what you're saying, both of you are saying about micro stress and the impact of us. All right, Karen, um, can you give me a couple of examples of micro? So we've talked about it, but I kind of need to understand how to characterize this thing called micro stress. Sure. So in the book, we we have 14 different sort of general and common categories of micro stress, but I'll take it up to a level to the sort of three categories that we think are meaningful to people. Um, the first one is uh, micro stress is a drain our capacity to get things done. And these are things that uh, show up on sticky notes and on your calendar, your feeling of being effective at the end of the day. And they can range from, we mentioned some of them earlier, of uh, sensing a misalignment with colleagues, but you don't quite know what it is yet. And you're sort of both going in different directions and you have to figure out how to get back aligned and make sure you're not asking other people to do things for you that aren't aligned with the goal of your colleague. You have to work together um, or just feeling that you um, that you have an endless to-do list that involves other people that triggers triple ripple effects for um, the asks of them, the favors you have to call in. Um, feeling that you that you're coping with uh, an endless stream of demands that you're always reacting to, as opposed to proactively being able to shape and control. So those are you know communication, all the things that we know sort of go wrong in our workday that make us feel at the end of the day that we didn't get anything done. Those would all fall into the categories of micro stresses that drain our capacity to get things done. I think a really good example of is someone who gets to the, this used to frequently be me. You get to the end of your workday, say five five thirty. And you've been in meetings all day, and each of those meetings has follow-ups and to-dos. And by the end of the day, you kind of even they're blurring together and you're forgetting. But even just then, you're starting to get to your own work. And you may get a communication from someone asking you for something that you now have to chase down for a little bit of time. We, we have an example in the book of a, um, a simple an email from a new manager asking someone for something. And the sort of hours of stress, micro stress that it triggers for her and all of her colleagues that try to chase down this request before she can kind of go home for the evening. And then that one stretches into your evening because she's late going home for the evening trying to resolve this. She doesn't sit down to dinner with her teenage son who's been a little bit sullen during the day and she's worried about what's going on. She misses that opportunity. She's tired of bed, gets up early to kind of tackle it again. That, 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 those are my stresses that drain your capacity and most of us relate to those. 
but there's another category that's less visible. It's not on your calendar or your to-do list, which are micro stresses that deplete your emotional reserves. Again, small ways, not giant things, not a terrible toxic person, but small interactions that sort of just take you know, some of your emotional reserves out of your tank. Um, an example that I like to use, because I think most of us have had it, is um, if you leave the house in the morning, just it's one of those mornings where you're running late, you're, you slept in, somebody didn't get homework done, some chore didn't get done, and you end up being exchanging curt words with your kids or with your spouse. And then you kind of feel bad all day. It, it's, it's a, that's a challenge to your emotional reserves. Um, and a common one that many people have is managing or caring about other people. You know, we think of the stuff we have to do. Maybe that's top of the list of microstresses you think about. But a really significant microstress for many of us is that you're in charge of or responsible for the well-being of other people at work or at home. And so worrying about that and monitoring them and watching them and say you have an employee who seems to be struggling to master something that they should have gotten by now and you have to coach them again that's a micro stress for you even though it's the employee who's not doing well um so there are several in the category of uh, depleting your emotional reserves and then the last one are micro stresses that challenge your identity again this is more subtle more internal you can't see it but you'll feel it um, good examples of these are things that just make you feel like not the person you want to be in small ways. Let's say you work on a sales team and your boss is really hyper aggressive. You know, there's an example, I think, in the book of someone who had a boss that wanted you to do dialing for dollars when they were coming to the end of the month. They wanted to aggressively go back to their clients and ask for more or sort of, you know, push more and sell more. And that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be a person that's kind of a slick salesperson. I want to have meaningful relationships with my clients. It's not that you can't do it. It's not unethical. It's just uncomfortable for who you want to be. That's an example of a microstress that challenges your identity. Wow. I would just add, if I could, for a second, the, the, the challenge identity ones, those were the ones that were really eye-opening to us as we went through because almost everybody would have described stretches in their life when they'd gone through three, five, eight years of their life, you know, trying to rise to the demands of a given system, right? And that can be the, both the professional side of their lives and the personal side. You know, people would routinely take one step too far trying to get into the right school district for their children or the right house or whatever they thought they had to do as providers um, and then wake up one day and realize they were nowhere near who they wanted to be as a person, right? And the crazy thing is, is it happens in those moments over time in this kind of anaconda that gets around people in different ways. Um, and so the, the interesting thing as Karen was describing that is they move from the more obvious and the drain capacity ones uh, to the more impactful and the more subtle, if you will, as, as you go down. Karen, that reminds me of one, your, one of your earlier books with Clayton Christensen about the long-term effect of choices in your career. And, you know, that since you make a series of choices that land you in a place and suddenly it isn't a right. place you want to be or you're happy with, it sounds very similar. Right. And that, that challenge your identity just sticks with you. It's the kind of thing that's just an uncomfortable feeling all the time. I'll, I'll give another example for my own life. Um, my sister and I both love our parents dearly, and they both have health issues as they're aging. And we can unintentionally snap at each other or, um, who you know, it's your turn to do such as, you know, we're somehow being having a difficult exchange just to take mom to the doctor or, um, you know, check in on dad. 
And the exchange with my sister, who I love, and we're both really devoted to my parents, um, ends up making me feel like a bad daughter or a bad sister. Or, and she might feel like a bad sister or a bad daughter in the process, just because of the way we interact. Nothing, you know, our relationship is good. Our love for our parents is good. But that interaction challenged my identity as uh, what I think of myself as just a really good sibling and a really good daughter. So small exchange, one that sort of reverberates for a really long time. You can see that too with, let's say, a subordinate that you're really working very hard to coach and develop and care deeply about and want to see grow and mature, but they're one more question, one more time at the wrong part in the day could, you know, lead you to just kind of not be as gentle and caring and coaching with them as you'd like to, just sort of a little bit more curt, a little bit more forceful, and that's not the boss you want to be. I can see that one. I can see all of those happening in terms of relationships that force you to be the person you don't want to be. That's okay. exact, That's a great example. That's exactly right. That that's who you don't want to be, and yet it just happened because of the micro stress of the of the moment of getting it done. All right. Now, one of the things that I want to highlight about these micro stresses, the thing that surprised me about your work, is that um, they don't even register in the fight or flight response. Explain. Well, we talked to neuroscientists and neurologists, and uh, it was really interesting learning about um, how microstress is different than other macro forms of stresses in that they're so quick and they're so brief and, and they're so, again, part of our everyday life that they do not register on the frontal lobe of your brain in the same way as a, ma- a more macro stress would. Um, the frontal lobe is kind of the mental scratch pad. So it's in your brain, but you may not literally remember you know, what happened, but you don't register it, but it's taking a toll on your body. So microstress is a very dangerous thing because cumulative little one may not be so big, but by the time they add up, they become very significant and are still taking a physiological toll on your body. The body doesn't distinguish between different forms of stress. So a lot of small stresses is still stressful to your body and your body responds as it would to any other stress. You can have elevated heart rate, you can have elevated breathing. There's even there's even research that says that if you are exposed to social stress within two hours of eating a meal, your body will metabolize that meal as if you had 104 extra calories than you actually did. And that doesn't sound like a big deal one by one. But if that happened to you every day, if you were exposed to social stress within eating a meal every day, you'd add 11 pounds in a year. Um, So the body responds to the stress, even though the brain doesn't fully register what happened. So I can explain my weight gain based on my colleagues at work who are (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. There you go. (laughs) Perfect excuse. I love that. That's an interesting data point that if I'm exposed to social stress within two hours of eating a meal, it's equivalent to eating an extra 100 calories. 104 calories, yep. 104 calories, wow. Okay, that would also say I need to stop eating at my desk or stop eating during a meeting (laughs) or some version of that thing. All right. Um, One of the other things that you talk about that I like a lot is one small disruption can derail you from the task at hand for up to 20 minutes. Hmm. You want to explain how that impact happens? Sure. So what we know from uh, other uh, studies and and 
cognition in particular is the act even of small disruptions, you know, looking down at a text and back up is a 60 to 64 second loss. And that doesn't mean that we're, you know, gone completely. It just means it takes that amount of time to kind of get back on track and catch up on things if it was a reflective task. Now, if you happen to be doing that in a meeting, then you may have missed the point that was really critical that everybody agreed on. And suddenly we wonder why we have misalignment everywhere uh, into today's context. But if the, the disruption is so great that you know the you lose your train of thought, what the psychologists would call a schema, then that can literally take 20 to 23 minutes to get fully back up to where you were. And so, you know, what we think about a lot is just people can do this intuitively. Ask yourself how many of the small ones did you let happen yesterday and how many of the big ones. And for many, many places that have cultivated this always on mentality and they have multiple Slack channels going constantly, instant messaging applications and a belief that's been created that you need to respond instantaneously, then that's really not a good thing. I mean, there's huge inefficiencies that are happening there, not because of the workload going up, which a lot of people are pointing. It's really more so the collaborative footprint and the way we're collaborating around the work that's consuming a, a tremendous amount of time. So that caught us off guard. You know, we're used to thinking about the volume of the interactions, but it's the fracturing of work too. And it happens, you know, in the example Karen laid out with the 1630 minute meetings, that's another element of it, right? You're moving across these meetings more quickly as well as the volume that gets uh, gets posed on us. So, I often, you know, going back to a psychological concept of working memory, the notion that I can only carry around so many things to think about in the course of a day, the number of meetings that we shift without transition points, one, two, three, four, five, you know, just your brain is literally full. <laughs> There's right. just no more capacity to work on. And I think people feel that too. I think that's another version of the stressors, micro stressors right. that you're talking about. Just the, yeah, and I, the volume of those and then the volume of meeting or teams that people are put on, right. you know, the knee jerk reaction for most leaders is to say, if there's some issue, we're just going to put a team on it. <laughs> and now people are on five, six, seven teams, you know, maybe one that they're accountable for, but so many others. And what we could see clearly through all of that was that many, many, many people are making decisions today, not on how to excel, but on which balls to drop, you know, and that's really not a good place to be from a stress standpoint as well. You know, it's kind of hitting in, in many, many ways. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. All right, one more for, for you, and then we're going to take a break. Negative interactions have three to five times the impact of positive interactions. What, what we tend to see is the, this is really a, a statistic from broad reviews of social psychology. And so generally speaking, we know the negative interactions have three to five times the impact of the positive on people's sense of well-being on other metrics that, that people have looked at over time. And so why that matters to us is many of the uh, prescriptions for mind for well-being today associated with mindfulness, gratitude, meditation, yoga, things like that, that are super helpful, right, to center ourselves and, and kind of reduce experiences of stress. What we're trying to introduce in addition to that is say, what if you could change the interactions themselves in ways that reduce those that are having three to five times the impact on your well-being? Our, our, we don't seem to be good at that. And all the audiences that we're in, people are quick to jump to the positive thing they want to go do, but they don't look back and say, how do I not get rid of a relationship? You know, I've been on so many of these discussions where people say, well, I need to buffer 
from that. And it could just be a simple shift in the way you're interacting, like Karen described with her sister, right? It was a very quick recognition that this trigger is happening. Here's what we can do to do, you know, get around that. And she's a great relationship with her sister, right? But she's focused on that, taking stress out of the interaction. And I've got my own examples too, where it was the real emphasis on the interaction that improved both of our well-beings, you know, materially. Um, but people don't do that. And they're leaving ultimately the highest impact stuff on the table. You know, the stuff that is three to five times the impact. I, uh, one of the things that I do, let me see if this works in your language and in your experience. Um, one of the things that I always advocate people do is to start when we're going to get together to solve a problem. That's what most of it's about in some capacity, but start with what's working changes the entire frame of the interaction. It changes everybody's mood in the room. It changes how you hear the what's not working. Is that an example of what you would mean by shifting the interaction? So I think so. You know, there's there's examples of where you either hone in on what are the positives. Like one of the examples we talk about with the confrontational conversations is people, that's one of the 14 micro stresses and people create stress for themselves because they worry about those things before the interaction, during the interaction, they're stressed out and half the time they don't get what they want out of it. And after they replay it five times in their brain and typically take three other people down the journey too <laughs> to see, you know, did I show up well? And so they're wildly, for certain people, they're wild impactful. Um, but we find that if you can start with a positive, if you can start with the data, get people to agree on what's the data in the situation, what is going on, get common agreement there. Uh, I always also recommend starting then with a systemic view and saying, well, what can I do differently first? Then what do we change about the context that we're in to fix that? And only later do you come back to what do I need from you? Right, right to make this all right. work, very okay. different, you know, set of interactions. Then you got to stop this <laughs> or something like that. What can I do about? Well, how can I change the context? What can I do differently? And then followed by, what do I need from you? Hmm. Great. All right, and I think the human being and all of us that we, if you hear negative straight away, right, you almost your mind. I think your mind again sort of shuts down because you're now in defensive posture right away. So the ability to actually have the conversations that you need to align again, which is a micro stress being misaligned, um, go away if you start immediately on the mm -hmm. things that are going wrong versus the things that are going right. Okay. All right. Hugely impactful book. Let me see if I can dare summarize our conversation thus to this point. So micro stressors. The tiny moments that happen in the course of everybody's day that are coming because of the volume of relationships, interaction, connections that we have that take a toll, many of which we don't even remember. If I go through dinner in the evening and say, what happened in my day? I don't even remember these necessarily, but the cumulative effect is as harmful as any other level of stress and perhaps as harmful as I think, Rob, you said at the beginning, smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So the impact is a big one. They show up in three broad categories, 14 subtypes, but ones that drain our capacity to get things done, ones that deplete our emotional reserve, and ones that challenge our identity, meaning I show up as a person I didn't mean to show up as in whatever way. And things like changing the nature of the interaction, shifting it to more positive ones, monitoring the number of interruptions in the course of the day, um, taking time around your meal so you're not having a negative social interaction in the midst of eating a meal are all the small things that we've talked about that you can do to better manage the micro stressors. 
How's that for a brilliant That's conversation in 30 seconds? I think you did great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is a perfect place to take a break. When we come back, I want to shift the focus from what this is and what it looks like to that top 10% of performers that seem to be thriving and seem to be doing things differently. And I want to understand what's unique about them. So we'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Rob Cross and Karen Dillon. Rob is a global leadership professor of global leadership at Babson, co-founder of Connected Commons, which is a consortium of 150 leading organizations. Karen is a former editor at Harvard Business Review, and they are both co-authors of The Microstress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. We spend a lot of time talking about what they are, why they matter, how to recognize them, what they look like, the impact they're having, the research and the insight behind it all around top performers and how do we help top performers perform and thrive. And I want to shift now solidly into the what do we do about it. So Karen, I certainly I recognize these in myself. I'm imagining just about everybody listening recognizes their own micro stressors or the impact of it at the end of the day. If they do, what is it that people can do about it right away? So what are some immediate anecdotes? So we actually have a diagnostic in the book in chapter five, where you can look at and try to document where where are my systemic sources of micro stress? Where are they coming from? And what are they? What are the ones that are really most affecting me? And people sadly often say, how many, how many can I fill out? I can, you know, I can check off just like a board of checkers. I've got everything on this list here. Um, so the reality is many of us have way too many micro stressors to eliminate completely. That can't happen. But what we do know from our research is that people who are better at dealing with this are actually very effective at eliminating two or three or pushing back on two or three that will have a really material impact on their day, their week, their month. So going through and identifying some systemic ones that happen all the time, not just in my interaction that was uncomfortable or 
drain your capacity or whatever, some things that are routinely happening to you, picking two or three that you think I can find a way to change that interaction somehow. Uh, you know, we talked about being misaligned with colleagues. It could be something as simple as literally building five minutes in the, at the end of every meeting to just make sure we agree together on the whiteboard or on some kind of documentation. What are we agreeing to do? Who's doing what? When's it due? Just just get your meetings into a place where you're not going to be automatically misaligned just because you don't take time to process, as you talked about. So picking two or three that you think you can push back on will have a really material impact on your day. So have a game plan and it can be small changes will make a really big difference. But the thing we often talk about and we do in the diagnostic that often surprises people is now take a second pass at this, at this chart to identify where the micro stress is coming from and note the ones that you are probably causing for other people. And everyone laughs and they say, wait a minute. But of course you go through and almost always the same micro stress as you're feeling, you recognize that you're probably causing that for other people as well. And again, picking just two or three, um, material impact on you, and how? Why would what? How would that make a material impact on you? It's because we know that when you cause micro stress for other people, it will almost inevitably boomerang back on you eventually. Just think about if you have a star employee who you're kind of constantly counting on to drop everything to do what your latest assignment is, or add an extra bit of load, or fix a problem that someone else caused. Star managers often overburden star employees, and that may be work for a little while, but eventually that's going to burn that person out. They're going to not want to work with you anymore. Worst case scenario, they're going to quit and, and you'll lose them completely. So you're not only benefiting your colleagues or the people in your life if you stop causing two or three to pick, but you're probably benefiting yourself as well. So as a simple diagnostic, you actually can, again, remove the negatives up to five times the impact on a couple of micro stresses and you'll feel it. Okay. Boy, that that would be an interesting to go back through that list and say, what am I causing for other people, peers and colleagues, and even my manager? Okay. Wow. All right. Diagnostic chapter five. And I think you guys have released an app related to this. Am I correct? Yep. It's out on the uh, app store right now. It's called the MicroStress Effect app, and it gives people a chance to go through these 14 and actually generate a report for them uh, to, to reflect a little bit on what they could do. Okay. All right. Micro stress app. I love it. Fantastic. What a great move. All right. I want to turn now to this top 10% because you said at the very beginning that 10% of the high performers that you talked to were not having these sort of micro stress effects. And you said you learned a lot from them. So clearly either they've got a special job or they've got a special tactic. So <laughs> tell me, tell me what you learned about this top 10%. One of the things, there's a couple of things that we learned through them, but one of the things was that they were much better at managing dimensionality in their life. And so they tended to have, you know, as I mentioned, at least two and usually three groups they were an authentic part of uh, outside of their profession. The stories that always ended up poorly, and these can be conventionally successful people, you know, wealthy, you know, great organizations, but they've left uh, a trail of destruction <laughs> in their path, you know, with children not talking to them and no friends and health problems that are irreparable. Um, but the people that managed well, they tended to preserve that dimensionality in their life. And what we think it does is it just creates perspective in life in a very different way. Most people have had experiences where they're going along grumbling about how crazy everybody is and ridiculous the situation is. And then bang, out of nowhere, something truly traumatic happens. You get a health diagnosis that's terrifying, a, a significant other is in trouble, or your child is in trouble, whatever it may be. And all those things that mattered 10 seconds ago, you look back on, why did I care? 
right? And so what what we see in this is the 10 percenters kind of live that way without the trauma. You know, they just live above this. And it's not a, you know, all everything is great, you know, rose colored glasses idea. It's more that they create this dimensionality in their lives and they have these sources of identity about being a runner or a friend or a singer or a musician or whatever it may be that helps them push back and keep things in perspective. But then that activity is putting them in different contexts that the conversations they're having, you know, suddenly you see your issues differently from different lenses. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, one really, really critical, you know, thing that we, we see them doing. Second thing I would say is that they were far more proactive in trying to shape their worlds. And the, the stories, again, that would almost always end up poorly is people that fell into a reactive posture, thinking they had to, you know, do everything for everybody else and they would get slowly further and further behind, whereas our 10 percenters uh, were much more likely to be proactive and saying, how do I you start initiating work that I want to be doing? So they would be planning on, say, a Friday or a Sunday night, but it wouldn't just be a one week operational timeline they had in mind. They would be thinking two months out and saying, how do I start structuring and work that I want to be doing? So I'm pulling myself into uh, activities uh, you know, that way. Um, so. A couple things anyway for the 10 percent. Couple. Um, if I think about the people I believe that I work with no reasonably closely, that I believe manage the day-to-day stress, so micro stressors, as well as anybody else. That's no one's perfect on this one. They do have an ability to step away from the details and mm-hmm. say, how important is this really in the grand scheme? Right. You know, some of them, yes, but some of them is like, yeah, okay, that's an annoyance, but it's not going to, in effect, it's not going to kill me. And know kind of when to get wound up and and when not. And as we were saying earlier, part of the problem is COVID has pulled us out of these coping mechanisms in different ways. And so if you're in that category and listening, what we would hear are three pretty consistent strategies for people that, that kind of fell out of these groups, either because life and family got busy or COVID or whatever. One that was very common was to see people reach back to a passion from the past and use that to slingshot themselves forward. So one of our favorite interviews was a neurosurgeon that, you know, started realized his life had devolved to purely profession and direct family. And he decided I'm going to start playing guitar because he played, you know, guitar in high school and went into a guitar store. And on the way out, bought a guitar on the way out, he passed by a flyer that said something like, you know, we're looking for a guitar player and what we lack in quality, we make up for in volume. And he decided to call him and he started playing guitar in a rock band with these 20 year olds. And he called us, you know, or or wrote a note, you know, back saying it's been the best choice of my life because it's bringing perspective in and putting things in perspective for me. The really important thing to me in that is number one, the dimensionality, right? It's creating a dimension of life and things get in perspective. Number two, though, is those people are never going to be his best friends. Right. We're too often thinking about what do I need in terms of authentic connections and I need two best friends. <laughs> and yet, if you start thinking about the interactions that can, for example, separate you from your profession a bit and allow you the perspective, um, you, you start to be able to pick up things differently. Right. So people you know, would reach back to a passion, use that to slingshot into a new group. They would reach back to ties that had gone dormant on LinkedIn. And, and Karen has a great example of that that she did through the pandemic, reigniting uh, some, some hiking friends or Converted them into hiking friends, I think it was, but friends from the past. Uh, And then the third is that they just tended to 
live the small moments more richly in connection with others. And there's stories behind that as well. But the people would really think about what are the things I'm already doing in my life? And then how do I pivot them in a way that could pull me into tighter connections with people that I care about? So it wasn't the massive things, it wasn't hiking the Himalayas. It was the living the small moments more richly that, that tended to be the, the distinguishers on, on those fronts. This reminds me, both all of these remind me of Cassie Holmes' research and this notion that you find moments of, she would say, um, discretionary time. I think she should say moments of joy. So things that I find joy and authentic connection to use your language in and celebrate those, meaning make a ritual around them. So I may not be able to get to play my rock band every night or every weekend, but when I do get one weekend a month to play, then I'm going to make a deal, a whole ritual out of how we go do that so that it has more richness, if you will. Um, is that? I know you know her research. Is that consistent in your view that those two are very tightly tied? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely ce- uh, celebrating, savoring the moment and kind of holding on to it for sure. I think the other thought that was in the back of my mind as you were talking uh, that through is not to do it alone. Um, you know, and there are definitely times that we need space. I'm a very, oddly enough, a very strong introvert for what I do. And that surprises people. And I have to find space to kind of re- regroup, right, in different ways. It's the nature of that game. But I can't let that become the default reaction to constantly say, okay, I've done this activity, I'm going to race out of here before I've spent maybe time after my cycling group with a group over coffee, right, to connect in certain ways. And that's, I think, one of the killers right now is people are so pressed that they go do, if they still go do these things, they go do them, but then they're racing away before they mine some of the connection benefit of it, you know, and actually invest a little bit in that too. One thing one of our 10 percenters told us, Wanda, that I thought was a really interesting way to think about this is he said he he looks, he looks tries to be aggressively, diplomatically saying diplomatic, respectful no's to things to keep some air in his life and his schedule so he can be enthusiastic about yeses that are more spontaneous. And he gave us an example of just being able to have a, a neighbor came over and knocked on his door and had a flooded basement. And he was able to, he had time, he could do it because he had been aggressive about the respectful no's so that he could hop over to his neighbor's garage and help help him take out the flooding in his basement. And I think that's a great way to think about it is uh, you have to work to create the time so you have the ability to have the spontaneous, enthusiastic yeses. Scott Solomon, um, who has been a cl- is a client still in some ways and has been a guest on the podcast, talks about ruthless efficiency, that his secret for creating that space is just to make sure that those 20 minutes that it takes when I get disrupted and I can't find the context and I don't know what the situation is about and I spend 30 minutes digging through my email really to understand it, that he is ruthlessly organized, ruthlessly, mm-hmm. and that that's a way he buys back minutes in the day to be intentional about what he's going to focus on. And I, I think also that allows him to kind of say how important is this thing? Really, mm-hmm. truly critical, mission critical, or it can wait. Is one thing. All right. Now I want to go, Rob, you said also that people are very proactive in shaping their world. One of my big passions in coaching is that we react to too often. And in reacting to, we give up our power to have an impact on how the future goes. And I think that mm-hmm. undermines a sense of well-being and it undermines resilience and it undermines a whole bunch of stuff. 
But talk to me about what you've seen people do to be able to proactively shape their world. You talked about initiate planning like two and three months out. Can you explain a little bit more about the ways they proactively shape? Yeah. So for us, I mean, and I want to hit it, I would hit it on both sides, you know, and part of what uh, we think about is this professional side, right? And and we know that people that are better at this, they were qualitatively different in being able to say what they were looking for in the future. Like a lot of people would come back and say, you know, in three to five years, I want to be at this role or in this level or whatever, just something abstract. And they really didn't have an idea what they were shooting for. It was just society's expectations, ultimately. The people that I saw throughout both books now, you know, because this is a similar content going across both, that were very effective, you would ask them questions about where they wanted to go. And they were very quick to say, here's the expertise I'm going to be using in my work or the values I'm going to be experiencing. Now, they wouldn't phrase it that way, but you would get materially different answers around. It's these analytical capabilities I want to be using. I want to be building teams differently. I want to experience, you know, the, the giving back through mentoring. Um, and they had much more concise answers and precise answers. And then you, they would use that to say, how do I find these opportunities to deploy or build those skills, right, in the in the occupation that I have? And it was amazing to me. Like, this is one of the things I'm always amazed by is we have never had more ability to shape what we do and who we do it with than today. You know, certainly we enjoy more latitude than our ancestors did. And yet we give it up very quickly. And what I would see with these people that were really thriving is they were much more likely to have created just enough space in their lives to be thinking proactively. And that's one of the challenges. When you get reactive, it's hard to get out of it um, because you just don't have the space to then start putting those bets out two months out, whatever it may be that, that, you know, creates the opportunities over time. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is being intentional on the personal side is just as important. The happier people, they tended to have, you know, investments in these groups that kept them physically healthy. But then there was usually, you know, one that was social, another that was maybe either spiritual or around aesthetic parts of life, like, you know, maybe religion and maybe poetry, maybe art, you know, other things like that. Um, And there was a real intentionality about those interactions, those groups being as important as work, you know, and kind of holding on to that, too. So the more rounded components of life so that I don't just end up with work and family is all that is supporting me. Um, This this notion of finding opportunities to do and build, you know, most people, when they're asked, what are you looking for? They want to identify the next job that they are, they think they're supposed to identify the next job. And you just gave the perfect answer to that. So what expertise do I want to develop? What values do I want to be living? What skills do I want to be developing? What experiences do I want to be having? All of which are actually under your control as under as opposed to under the organization's control to grant you a job or a promotion or a title or whatever else, but you can do that on your own. It's it's a very interesting thing. Richard Metcalf also has this notion that, you know, you find what are you freeing your time for and that you want to be looking at the things that no one has asked for yet. That it's that advanced (laughs) planning that is what you're looking to spend your time with. So, all right, with that, um, sadly, I think we're out of time because I could keep going because all of this looks like parallels with resilience and parallels with purpose and parallels with sense of joy and happiness. And, you know, I think, Rob and Karen, you've discovered what all of us are desperately needing in our lives. 
Well, thank you so much. I mean, that's a great way to end. I say we stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll second that. I think what's really fascinating about this is recognizing that all those little things are actually really important. And what's nice about the little things is that there are little things we can do to do something about them. Change an interaction, change a framework, a little more proactive um, a, a little less reactive, all of which are great ideas. So Robin, Karen, again, thank you very much. What a brilliant book and wish you great success with it. And remind everybody there's a lovely app called the Micro Stress Effect app. So thanks. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. 